Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another awesome episode lined up for today with a really interesting guest. Today's guest is the learning and development lead at Medtronic. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Casey Jensen. Casey, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Appreciate it. Happy I'm to be really, here. I'm really excited to have you share your background with our audience, but before we get to that, uh, I do want to ask you the question that we start every episode with and get your input on what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. Ah, uh, the deskless workforce. You know, in, in my in my experience and opinion, the the biggest two challenges is one, they're underrepresented in the amount of time given to learn. And that then that is just across the board, whether that's technical skilled or soft skilled, it's just a a lack of time. And then it's buy-in from management to be able to really allow that learning to happen. It's really interesting. Talk, talk about the time. The time is something that we talk about a fair amount on the show, but I'm, I'm curious to get your, your take on that. You know, so when you look at the frontline workforce, um, and whether it's a deskless worker or assembly line or even a call center, you know, so to speak, you're, they are so driven by statistics and metrics that being off the, like for example, the call center being off the calls for an hour, two hour, three hour has somewhat of an impact to the business. And unless the business is willing to account for that less uh, uh, call rate and all of that, then the learners are going to continue to not have that opportunity. Same thing with the assembly line, right? You, you look at anything of FedEx, UPS, Amazon, any of the manufacturing folks, that are on that line, as soon as you take somebody off, there's an impact to manufacturing, it's an impact to what comes out in that output. So it, it limits their ability to be able to actually learn. And then on top of that, those with with and without computers also have the you know challenge of, can I actually log in on this computer? And if I don't have a computer, how do I get to a computer to learn and to be able to do those virtual sessions? So it's, the time time is a huge investment on both. I'd like to explore that a little bit more with you, but I, I really do want to have you introduce yourself to our audience so that they have some context about who they're hearing from today. So up to and including the recent designation of Dr. Casey, uh, share your background, how you ended up in the role you're in today. And uh, obviously, because we've talked about this a little bit before we jumped on today, I'd, I'd like to understand a little bit more about the recent degree you just achieved. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I have a, a really, really interesting background. And, and every time I reflect on it, it, it kind of has a question mark above my head going, how, how did I get here again? <laughs> you know, so so yes, I, I'm Casey Jensen. At the moment, I'm working at uh, Medtronic as a learning and development lead for a particular system implementation, uh, which which we, we can likely talk about in a little bit here. Um, I have this weird background that's split between supply chain and operations and learning and development. 
So I, I started off a long time ago in, in the military, spent 12 years in the Air Force, started off in supply chain logistics. Um, my last four or so years there was in learning and development, leadership development, and, and teaching, and full-time facilitation, so on and so forth. When I got out of the military, I had no idea that that learning and development was an actual field in the, in the corporate world. So I reverted back to my supply chain background, which quite honestly ended up to be such a blessing in disguise because it allowed me to understand the business and how business worked outside of the military bubble and into the corporate environment and gave me a lot more education on the terminology behind it. What do we mean by X, Y, Z? Uh, and then I had the opportunity to come back into learning and development and develop my uh, frontline programs to manager programs, um, soft skills, technical skills, and, and really going through that whole process and measuring and evaluating and making sure we're, we're doing what, what is right. So that's, that's how I kind of got here. It, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting set of experiences that give you the wisdom that you need in, in your current role. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. And, and what's, what's really fascinating about it is my current role is for the supply chain with them. So this, this weird background that I never thought would truly converge on itself is now I have the, the supply chain terminology and knowledge to be able to have a conversation with our end user, but also the learning and development portion of it to be able to make sure that we're actually creating the content that's going to reach those business objectives. And it's and it was fascinating. I I remember last week or earlier this week we had conversation about demand and planning and what that really means in the system. And I mean, here I am translating between the supply chain and learning and development folks about what's really happening and challenging on both sides of it to make sure again that we're we're hitting what our what our customer needs. Really interesting. So tell us about the degree. So uh, a couple months ago, I, I finally finished up my doctorate of business administration. Um, I like to say my concentration is in human resources management and learning. I, my, my dissertation was actually on skill transfer of enlisted veterans into the corporate world and the adaptability and how they had to adapt those skills for where they're at. So um, really awesome journey, much like a you kind of imagine an MBA, and and here's how I describe it. Right, your your bachelor's degree teaches you that their information exists. Your master's degree teaches you how to apply the more advanced techniques, and then a doctorate says, okay, now let's challenge all of those prior and figure out what a new way forward is. So it, it was a completely separate way of thinking for me, and going through all of the different types of accounting to finance to marketing to supply chain human resources. And having discussions with my cohort was just amazing and eye-opening as we were we were drawing upon our own own experience and challenging back and forth between the content. And it, it opened my mind so much on how to ask questions, challenge my biases that I had, and taught me how to kind of go into these conversations, exactly like back to the learning and development side of talking with our customers to find out what are we really trying to achieve here? without having my own, you know, thoughts and ideas pop out first. It's let's let's listen and really diagnose what's going on here. Uh, but yeah, I I am super proud of it. I am happy, I'm happy that it's over. It was <laughs> I bet. almost four years of really, really hard work. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on that. That's uh just an amazing accomplishment. And I, I believe you just finished it in the last couple of months. Is that true? 
Yeah, yeah. Technically, I defended in July and officially graduated in August, and then I'll I'll actually do the walking ceremony in December when it when it happens. So, so well, yay! <laughs> congratulations! I, I believe you were the first doctor of business administration I've ever uh, met and spoken with. So uh, I'm excited. This is <laughs> this is awesome. You said something as you were giving uh, some background about your military experience, and you talked about the change as you were getting into the corporate side of things. And you kind of threw me off a little bit in that I have no experience being in the military, and you just kind of talked about the difference between you know the military and the corporate environment. And, and it was almost like the military doesn't have a culture of learning. And, and I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of the way I understood the way that you talked about it. And what I thought was interesting about some of your phraseology is that from the outside looking in, I look at the military as spending most of their time doing nothing but training, <laughs> right? And, and so the idea of you then coming into the corporate environment and having kind of a different way of doing that, I'd really like to explore that a little bit. Did I misunderstand the intent of what you were saying perhaps, or... Is it just that the military looks at training and corporate, I should say that the military and business look at training in a different way? Help me understand that. Very, very much so. Um, so for example, um, well, let me, let me back up. One, the military puts a huge investment on training, learning, and development. It's, it's nonstop. It exists. And one of the biggest differences between the corporate environment and military is if you look at the leadership development path, for example, the military had a requirement that if you are going to get promoted into a supervisory role, you are required to successfully complete leadership development. For example, the Air Force has a five-week, four or five weeks now, called Airman Leadership School, which takes them out of their job for four to five weeks and put them in a classroom setting and goes through every bit of what's it, what does it mean to be a leader operationally, uh, paperwork, bureaucratic, bureaucratically, you know, and so on and so forth. However, when you look at the skill set of what's required within the military, there's a lot that although it can translate over to the corporate world, there's a level of adaptation there that, that's required for folks to be able to truly fit into the corporate environment. You know, what? Uh, uh, one of my favorite examples, one of my favorite, um, I was talking with a uh, sergeant major who was 25, 30 years in the army. And he got out and he's like, you know, one of my biggest challenges is, is I had no idea you should wear a black belt with black shoes and brown belt with brown shoes. Like, <laughs> I, you know what? I, I totally get that. I went through the same thing as a veteran myself. Like, I don't know how to dress. I had a, I had a 200 page manual to tell me how to dress. So what, what does this mean now? And and that's that's the kind of thing. And communication was another big finding on the communication can be extremely direct within the military. And that's what's needed because at the end of the day, we know that we know what the mission is at the end of the day, right? There, there's lives that could be at stake. So we need to be direct, we need to be clear. It has to be done now. And and one of my participants in it was just saying, you know, I got like 50 emails in one day, and it had 60 different questions and not one answer in there. And then it took a couple of days for somebody to finally come back and come back to it, you know, and then, and then the last piece that I'll say, which is one of my favorite portions is I started defining this, this concept of dark ambiguity. And that really had more to do with when you look at the, at understanding your purpose of taking a role, 
within the military, it's fairly easy of you, you always know, because everybody takes the same oath. You know, you put that right hand up, I, I will defend the constitution, foreign, domestic, so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, everything you're doing goes back to that. In the corporate world, that's not so much. You can get into a company that has, you know, that, that could be selling widgets, healthcare, whatever it might be. And it's, okay, but, but why am I here? What are we really going for? What's that greater purpose? What's that greater good? What are we aiming for? And, and many veterans end up stumbling on that one of, I don't know why I'm here. And then you can go to like the light ambiguity that says, hey, I understand why we're here and what we're going for. We just don't know how to do it. Then that problem solving critical thinking really kicks in and be like, cool, let me help bridge that gap to get us there. But that dark ambiguity portion of the purpose and how do I still serve that greater purpose? How do I still do that? Uh, really starts to throw, you know, a wrench into the, what do I do now? You know? So it's, it's fascinating. And I could talk for hours on, on this particular topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't normally talk a lot about military uh, on this show, but um, I've actually had a few offline conversations recently about how the military actually represents perhaps one of the largest frontline workforces that exists, right? We, we tend to talk about it in terms of, of commercial application, but uh, obviously that the military certainly represents that. So I, I'd love to explore it a little bit more. I'm curious if you came across any differences in the time that people are in the military. In other words, somebody that just, I don't want to say just, but did only, you know, did four years versus, you know, I, I have one friend who was in the military for, for 20 years. And so he had some pretty deeply ingrained mm -hmm. qualities after 20 years of, of being in the Marines. And I wonder, are there differences in how they transition into other jobs? Yes. That, I mean, the short answer is absolutely right. If you have somebody that's been in for four years, they haven't necessarily gotten indoctrinated to a supervisor manager level gone through that training and have that further education, getting out is an easier transition in the way of that, the way you were previous before military is not necessarily as heavy as somebody who's gone up to the highest ranks of the enlisted or officer force and starting to go like, okay, this is my way of life. This is my life. This is my routine. This is what I have to do. You know, and there's, there's absolutely a, an adaptation portion of that when coming out, you know, I, I talked to one, one guy who was in for, uh, 10 years or so, um, got a job at a, a convenience store cause he needed to pay the bills. And some guy, somebody came in and tried to steal stuff. He's, he chased them down, got it back and then got fired the next day because that was against corporate policy. It's like, no, you don't, you don't chase people. You can get hurt. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And when I asked, I had the conversation of, well, well, why did you do that? Why did you have that inclination for, you know, an 850 an hour job to, to do that? He's like, I, I don't know. I mean, it, there's something in me that says you're taking something that's not yours. You're taking something from someone else. I'm going to protect that. And as we went through the conversation, it was very clear that it went back to the military values and, and how they operated through those 10 years within the military. Now, I, I'm happy to say that they found a much better job and they moved up and they adapted and all of that now. But those were the, just the kind of story that when you look at the how you have to come into the corporate environment and that level of knowledge transfer, learning uh, and whatnot, it's, it's massive. And it's something that's not really talked about today, um, which I'm trying to change. Well, I bet a lot. I haven't really thought about this at all until this conversation, but I bet a lot of the frontline roles 
that we do talk about on Frontline Innovators that are traditional corporate roles are filled by former military folks. And this includes field service technicians and delivery drivers and, and just people in all walks of life. I mean, you know, 80% of the workforce are deskless frontline workers. So the odds are pretty good statistically that many people that are filling those roles are coming out of former military roles. And um, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, if our audience picks up on any of that in their workforces and, you know, can learn from some of the things that you just said or others that you'll say down the road, um, it, just about how that may apply to their change management and their transition and the way that they think about L&D in a corporate environment to be uh, empathetic to the way that those folks may have learned in their previous life. Yeah. And there's, and I'll even, I'll, I'll say one, maybe one step further on that, you know, half of my study the study I did to, to get this degree was half of it was veterans. The other half was managers that were not veterans and asking that question about, you know, how do those skills transfer? And what was really kind of fascinating is there was, there's a discrepancy between the viewpoint of the veteran and the viewpoint of the manager who doesn't have a lot of insight into, into what a veteran has gone through on service and active duty and all of that. And, and a lot of things, even like the, I don't know what to wear and the amount of stress and anxiety that that creates wasn't even on their radar. Only one of my uh, veteran participants mentioned that, you know, he, when he got a new job outside of the military, he was showing up late to work because he was overanalyzing like, well, if I wear a blue shirt with blue pants, does that make me look like this? Is that going to offend somebody? Like, what do I wear here? And, and what the company did was amazing is they said, you know what? Just, just for like the next couple of weeks, let's adjust your time frame. Come in a little bit later. Take your time. We'll help you through this transition to understand what that means. And within about a month, he was he was more than fine. You know, not a big deal. And it's a it's a small thing, but it, it's such a massive when you have this ingrained and it's indoctrinated in an isolated culture that says this is how you will look. Period. Like this yeah. is a standard. You will not drop below it, or else. <laughs> No, it's, it, yeah. And I mean, it, it goes on and on, on the kind of the discrepancies about what, what managers don't know and what veterans don't say, which yeah. in, in a lot of aspects, it makes sense on why veterans don't say is there's also that quote, that culture of like, let's not complain. Let's just get through this, you know, but, but just go, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> so. I, I literally just got off a call with a bunch of former podcast participants. So after today, I think I mentioned to you, you'll get invited to a group called the Frontline Innovators Council, where we have uh, open forum conversations, kind of a roundtable uh, about the challenges of technology adoption. And one of the things that was just talked about, literally just the hour before this session, was about the value of the men and women on the front lines providing feedback and or complaining. And it was serious. I mean, there was some joking involved in the conversation about, yeah, we don't necessarily want to open the floor to people whining and complaining about this change and about the technology and stuff like that. But they did speak to the fact that number one, we want to open the floor to get that feedback out. We'd rather know it and be able to deal with it and be able to deal with the people and, and the legitimate challenges that they may be raising. At least we have something that we can sink our teeth into. And then those teams at least know that we're listening. So when we open the floor to that conversation, so we definitely had some joking about it and maybe sometimes you open up can of worms and maybe get a little bit more feedback than you intended and stuff like that. But what you're making me realize is that somebody coming out of the military 
you know, complaining is probably not in vogue uh, in the military, right? And and there, even if you are going to provide feedback, there's probably a very structured format for that feedback, and they may feel that there are repercussions if they use that too often. So now coming into a corporate environment where we're asking for feedback, I mean, this whole team of people I just talked to is asking for feedback. They're looking for people to tell them what's wrong. I'd be curious if you think some of those folks with military background might not feel open enough to actually talk about those things. You know, I, I have a, uh, I have a colleague, well, friend, I will say, um, who went through this whole program with me, through this doctorate program with me and whatnot. And we got in a conversation one day about she, she had a very specific requirement for hiring somebody at a little bit higher level and saying, you know, what I'm worried most about is they're going to do more of what they're told than to be able to kind of have that fight with me because I need somebody to challenge me back on this. And I kind of laughed about it going like, okay, one, I totally get it. You know, I, there's, I, I do my best to pick my battles. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes, and, and don't use this expression, but it's just the essence of it, of, you know, you have permission to speak. You have a voice. It's okay to use it. And, and what I, what I have found at least with the veterans of either I work with or, uh, I talk with are when there's a form of a real feedback, not, not they wanting to play, it's too hot today. I don't want to work the, you know, the system's broken, the process is broken and here's what it is that you, you can get veterans to do, but there is the point of almost having to go one-on-one -on -one at times to be able to have that real feedback. You know, and I'm, I'm a big believer of the, the Henry Ford days of if you really want to know what's going on, you got to go down there and see, <laughs> you know, and you have to have that openness. And the one challenge that I'll put back to it is feedback is fantastic. I love getting feedback. I want feedback. But unless you have a way of actually using it and implementing whatever that feedback is, it's not worth getting. Because at the end of the day, the workforce tends to start going at the well, I told you, but you're doing nothing with it. So how many times am I going to speak before I'm just done? And then we find that, you know, lower morale is in there, lower willingness to talk and talk about the problems um, and so on and so forth. So it's when you're implementing that feedback loop, it is super important to be able to have the support of management to be able to actually do something with it, or it's going to go nowhere. You know, love, love getting feedback, but what are we doing with it now? It's a difficult balance, especially since we talk so much on the show about having to earn trust and, and build confidence that, you know, with the folks at corporate and the men and women on the front lines and what you just described, that circumstance erodes trust in that we've opened the floor for feedback and then we shut it down. They, they get the impression that we've shut it down, even if we've taken it to heart, even if we've deliberated a lot on that feedback, but we come to the conclusion that we can't implement the changes that maybe they were requesting, I think maybe sometimes we don't do a good enough job of communicating back to, hey, we heard you. Here's why we're going to implement this. Here's here's why we're not going to implement these other things, right? Um, I know that's easier said than done, but it does erode trust over time. And, and the very next time we go back to get feedback from those same folks, they may be less inspired to, to share it because they just don't feel like it's going to go anywhere. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree with that. You made a comment earlier on that I want to go back to, and, and that is, how do we make a case for giving the frontline more time? And that was in the context. So, you know, you talked about 
one of the biggest challenges underrepresented in the amount of time given to learn both technical and soft skills. And so that question of how do we make the case for, for giving the frontline more time? I'm, I want to ask that question right back to you. How do we make that case? And what have you seen be successful? So I, I, I'm going to give you my perspective on it. And, and I'm going to tell you that this is a lot easier to say than it is to get everybody to buy into. You know, when, when we look at learning and development, training and education, all, all of those great words, you know, upskilling employees, really, the, the number one thing that I see that, that learning and development misses is linking it to the business objective and business strategy. Right. We, we get, we get kind of sometimes wrapped up in the learning objective on if you take this two hours of training, here's what you're going to be able to do. But the one step further is here's how it's going to benefit the business. And in reality, when you're able to start to benefit and link that back to the business strategy and show them what that return is going to be, they start to buy in. Now you're going to have to start slow. It's not going to be like, Hey, let's get all thousand people in the call center through this one training at a time. It, it might be that, you know, hey, here's our test case. Here's our test cohort, whatever it might be. Let's see how this goes. Um, for example, I, I did a rotational, what it? it was called um, the Cross Operations Rotational Experience Core. Um, and it was a two-year-long program. And it took 10 people out, out of their normal everyday jobs for, you know, for a very reasonable amount of time, for a couple of days in person, virtual learning, so on and so forth. But the intent of it was, let's get these folks that are that have huge potential to have more understanding about what leadership is. And now let's take them and rotate them in a year into a brand new position and see how they start to use these skills that have been developed and what impact does it have on the operation. And what we found was one, although you know the whole learning curve still goes up and down, when they got into the new position, the learning curve was limited. They, they learned faster, but they also learned how to use a little bit more humility to ask questions and then had that little light bulb on of, you know, all these frustrations I had with working with this team. Now I understand what their issues were. And if we would have just talked about it, we could have just worked together and made this so much easier and faster and better. And they also started having an impact on their frontline workforce and being able to pass on lessons, skills and taking that feedback to see what can we actually do with it. So I, I pushed the business into, one, you need to look at your operational statistics, and we need to start to track that at that level to be able to say, yes, this is making an impact, this is making a difference. And I'm, I'm super proud to say that um, out of the 10, eight of them completed the program. And I want to say last I checked, which was like one or two years ago, six of them were went from a supervisor to a manager, senior manager. And, and they related it a lot to the program of let's, let's open up and expand and keep this rotation and understanding and open up the lines of communication and understanding. And they were, they were blown away by it. They were taken back by it. And it was just success after success. And I was so proud of that program and, and how much I got to facilitate and the content I created. But it took months of working with the business to define what are we really trying to do here? And not only what are we doing, who's our population, who's going to be in it, who, who do we want to go through it and just have those conversations. But every single thing we did on every lesson linked back to what that strategy is and what they were going for, for an increase in people and operations and so on and so forth. 
And that's how we got their buy-in. I, I said, here's your business objective. Now here's the curriculum and how it connects to that business objective directly. And we continued on having those conversations. So it's, it was not easy by any means, but it was really, really great conversations and really having those definitions out there. You've said to me before, it's a bit of a negotiation. It is a negotiation. Is that what you meant by that? Uh, partially. You know, okay. the negotiation portion really comes into play of, you know, negotiation, give or take, whatever you want to call it, is the, you know, sometimes in the learning and development world where, hey, you know, we need 40 hours of this and you'll be proficient in the business. It's like, yeah, you're not taking someone off my front line for 40 hours. Yeah. Hell you no. just want me to shut the whole place down? Like, right, do you know right. what I want to make it make anything? Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to, you want us to lose how much profit here? You know, come on, yeah. have revenue generated. You know, and when you look at that, then it's the negotiation of like, okay, well, well, how much time can we do over what period of time and what makes sense for that? And then you go through and you really start digging into the curriculum and say, okay, you know, got it. You know, the, these three, four, five hours are be nice to have, and maybe we'll do it optional for some of the workforce um, if they want to do it. You know, here's what the core is. And you just start chunking it out to figure out, you know, one, what is the you know, that whole minimum viable product, you know, what can we get out that makes sense, that's usable, that's going to make a step in the right direction, knowing that there might be future releases out there, you know, and future new content, but you have to take sometimes that just incremental steps. And that's where the negotiation comes into play of, okay, management, VP, director, senior manager, this is, this is what we heard from you. This is what you want to achieve. Here's how I propose to do it. Here's our recommendation of time. And now let's have that negotiation about what that time looks like over how many, you know, days, weeks, months, years, whatever it might be. Um, and sometimes those get kind of heated conversations. And, you know, on the adult learning side, we come back being like, they don't they understand. And the business is like, don't they understand? We need our people. Like, yes. Okay. Both sides have a very valid argument. How do we combine this? How do we negotiate? How do we collaborate to make something useful for all, for all parties? Yeah. Good friend of mine, Kurt Swain. I always I've, I've shouted him out a few times in the show. He he introduced the phrase to me, uh, MVP, but minimum viable proficiency. Ah, uh, yep, yep. I and, like that too. And I I like that thought. He was the first one to have referenced that to me, and it it really made me realize that we don't necessarily need to um, bring them fully up to speed on everything that they could possibly ever do all at one point in time. And that could be part of the negotiation as you described it, which is to say, let's get the MVP out. Let's get them to a minimum level of, of um, proficiency now and then give them the resources that they need in the moment, in the future, when they experience that circumstance, allow them to be resourceful and make sure that we have reference materials for them and things like that. And yeah, Absolutely. And, I, and I'll tell you that, that as we're able to successfully implement those type of things, and that incremental, it gives businesses more opportunity to hire from within than pull some folks out from, you know, from college, whatever it might be, or other experience, as they are also learning more and understanding the business more and getting more uh, acclimated and exposed to different different business lines and just different business units. So it, it all has such a great impact on the company in itself as well. It's just, you've got to get the buy-in. <laughs> It, it seems, and you've mentioned this too, L&D kind of goes overboard, perhaps sometimes. 
I'm wondering why you think that is. Is is that just an idealistic view of hey, we we just we want to be as complete as possible? Or uh, you know, I, I'm I'm curious. Do you think they're truly overdoing it? Do you think that the LND folks are just? Um, I know I'm generalizing here in my question a little bit, but I'm I'm curious to get your take on that versus the business who says, hey, we can give you 10 minutes. The LND team is saying really what we need 40 hours. Is the truth somewhere in the middle or is L&D trying to carve out more time than is really necessary just because of the nature of their learning style? They think that everybody else needs to carve out four or five days to go through classroom training and stuff like that. I'm curious to get your take on that. My perspective, it's somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, the a lot of times um, I, I find like learning and development and not, not any fault of their own, not that they, anybody's doing anything wrong. It's how do we build the most complete, best program? What what I find, especially if if you've grown up in learning and development, and that's been kind of your path since the beginning, in in my perspective, you're missing the operational understanding and having that. I'll say either frontline or even having the conversations and understanding what the business is going through, and that reason why forty hours isn't even feasible. More than just like, hey, we're going to limit revenue. Like, there's a lot of planning that goes involved in that. There's a lot of you know, if somebody is off the floor and we're training them, we're still paying them, but we're losing productivity. And there's so many different aspects to it that, you know, I think sometimes the human resources side forgets that and or isn't exposed to it as not as much, which is why, like, my background is, is fascinating. And it's changed my thinking on if I create it, if I create a program, if I create something to to enhance people's proficiency uh, better product training, whatever it might be, it still goes back to, you know, what do you really need? Why do we need it? And now how do we achieve it in the best way? And I, and, and to me, you know, I, I have, I, I have so many stories about it. Um, one of my favorite is I was working with a, with the IT section, IT department about, um, about a different leadership development program that was created internally uh, got great reviews. People loved it. And their challenge was this has no link to my, to my business objectives, to the strategy. I don't know where it fits in. I don't know who's really promoting it other than this is a really cool concept to where I'll say, you know, that flavor of the month type learning, you know, it's a cool thing out there, so on and so forth. Uh, but it missed, it missed the purpose. Like it missed the purpose of why are we teaching this and how is it enhancing and why is the company investing in it? And why should you send your people to it? You know, and, and as we go through more and more on the L&D side, there needs to be more understanding about what the operational folks or what your customer base is going through and have that exploratory conversation to be able to build a program that's going to work for them. Because at the end of the day, there's there's always going to be a unique challenge for business units. And if you can't connect those then you're not going to get the buy-in that you want. You're not going to be able to go as far as you want. You're not going to be able to get the participation that you want. And then to me, even more importantly, you're not going to have the knowledge or skill transfer that's needed. And, you know, it's great listening to somebody talk and facilitate for hours upon end, but if they go back to work and do nothing with it, then what's the point? Like, what do we really do with this? <laughs> you know, the the best business analysts that I've been around that are providing uh, discovery and, and design uh, skills around technology often will spend as much time in the field working right alongside those teams for whom they are building this technology. 
Um, I believe the Japanese have a term for that, Gemba, which is mm-hmm. like getting out on the floor, right? Going to see how the operations actually work. As I think back, as you're talking about that, I think back to a lot of the other podcast guests that we've talked to, and I heard that also from a lot of change management professionals. So those folks seem to have a strong empathy for before we start creating a plan, I need to go out and see their current circumstances so that we can build a transition plan from where they're at to where they need to go. I'm also thinking of the counter of that, that I haven't heard that spoken about a lot from the L&D community. And I know I'm making big generalizations. Maybe I've just talked to folks that haven't had an opportunity to do that, or maybe they just haven't shared their stories. So I hope the L&D folks that are listening don't get angry at me for saying that. Um, but, but it is a little bit interesting that um, perhaps there's some differences in the roles in the background of those folks and how they look at the priority you know, where they prioritize their time and aren't spending as much time as would be helpful if they were to get out in the field and understand why it's impossible to ask for 40 hours from a supply chain employee or even probably four hours, right? We're saying 40 hours to make the point, but it could be as little as four hours, right? And, And the leadership over that organization is saying, hey, that's great. We'd love to take them off the floor for four hours, but I need to have somebody else running the machines, driving the trucks, serving the patients, right? Doing all of those other things that those employees need to do. So it's virtually impossible. And without that experience of being on the floor to really understand that and figure out how your L&D and change management strategy can be woven in, then you're kind of setting yourself up for failure in that negotiation, in that conversation with the business that you know you support. Now, yes, I absolutely agree. And, and the best advice I can give to folks is you've got to be able to ask the questions and I'm, I'm the first one to raise my hand and be like, I don't understand the acronym you're saying. I don't understand the operation, the right. process. Like I, I, I would like to know more about that. And I'm, I'm very much like great to look like the, I'll say I'd rather look, um, stupid for a minute than three months down the road and assume, right. And be like, okay, I still don't know what we're talking about. I'm missing the point. So I'm, I'm very big about raising my hand being like, okay, you just said a whole bunch of words. Break that down a little bit more and let's let's have the conversation about what those challenges and roadblocks are so we can start to adjust what that strategy is, what content we can give. And you're absolutely right. You know, 40 hours is it, a ridiculous amount for somebody on the front line. Uh, you know, I, I've worked with folks that they may, they may have 30 minutes to an hour in a month for professional development. And that goes for annual training stuff as well and so on and so forth. It's it, it, it's hard, you know, because yeah. it's so statistically driven and there, there has to be some leniency in there. But again, you have to make the argument. You have to show the benefit behind it. You have to have those real hard conversations about uh, what this looks like, why it looks this way, and really what's going to be the benefit to the, to the company. Yeah. We're already coming up close to time here, but there's a, at least one more question I want to throw out to you here. Um you were talking about this challenge of time for the men and women on the front lines. And one of the things that you said was from their perspective, how do I get to a computer to learn? That's near and dear to me and my day job at Skillful because that's part of what we're trying to solve for. So I'm very curious to get your take on solving that problem. How do they get to a computer to learn? And is that the most beneficial, practical way for the men and women in the front lines, supply chain applications, and others of, of the ones that we've talked about here. How do we solve for that problem? I don't know if I have a great answer for that yet. 
You know, I, I, I have been with some folks that have more or less a, you know, quote unquote learning lab to where they have multiple computers to where folks can do it. Um, but even, even having a, a resources that exist, the, the question still comes back down to are, is the company going to provide the time that it takes to do this and, and understanding that, you know, different people, different education levels, different learning styles, different um, concepts and how we pick them up, you know, sometimes takes longer for some than others. And that's, that's perfectly okay. It's something you have to be able to plan for. Um, but it still comes back onto the management and company side of one, are you going to give the time? And if you're going to give the people the time, fantastic. Now it comes to the measurement portion of how do we make sure people are using that time wisely and appropriately and not jumping on the computer and going to, I don't know, Facebook and just messing around for that hour versus let, let's do that professional development. You know, I, I would love to say that maybe using mobile devices is the right thing to do, but then we run into, you know, and I, I you and I have talked about this a little bit, you know, prior conversation of the, yeah. now you run into labor laws of, you know, if somebody is at home on their phone on LinkedIn learning or whatnot, or do you have to pay them for that? And then how do you verify that, you know, one, they did it or how do they account for those hours? Was it mandatory training versus, you know, leisure training? Like there's so many different things that go behind it. And it's like, okay, there's, there's a huge challenge here. And I, and I don't know other than number one step is you got to get management buy-in to say, yes, I can afford to have um, 38 hours a week on the floor, two hours a week for learning, you know, example, whenever that might be, and then holding people accountable to it. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely a tough one. <laughs> very, very difficult challenge. Yeah, there's not a silver bullet. I'm always joking around folks that I'm looking for what that silver bullet is. And then we'll just go build it into our product and solve all the world's problems. But right, right, absolutely. the reality is we, we recognize that it's not that simple. A, a few things that come to my mind uh, about this are, um, you know, leveraging micro learning, breaking content down into to really small bite-sized chunks so that they can be absorbed in those moments of downtime that the men and women in the front lines have. I think that's one of the things as, as I'm saying that out loud now, I realize that, you know, when we go to operational leadership with frontline workers and we say, hey, go carve out four hours, that thought might be, you know, paralyzing to them because shutting things down for four hours may seem impossible. But if we could do it in 10 minutes when they have some natural downtime and do that for, you know, tw 20 times over the next two weeks, when they have 10 minutes here, five minutes here, breaking things down, can we make that? you know, turn that downtime into something more productive. The, the other thing that just comes to mind, going back to my comment about Kurt Swain with minimum viable proficiency, it's resetting our expectations about what level of proficiency the men and women on the front lines really need to have in order to get started. So we don't need to give them uh, a PhD <laughs> in this, right? Let's get them started. Let's give them the minimum viable proficiency for them to do their job successfully and safely but let's understand that they're not going to reach mastery on day one, but provide them with the, the resources and time that they can grow to a level of mastery over time, right? So I think it's just about kind of reframing what the expectations are. And I, I just loved when you shared with me that concept of having to negotiate because it, it is that it, you know, other guests on the show have talked about, you know, change management and L&D being a bit of a sales job, right? They're, they're not trying to sell something for a dollar transaction in the traditional sense, but they are trying to persuade their colleagues and stakeholders and other parts of the organization that, hey, we, we do need some time. And net, net, there's a benefit 
if we can reach a, a mutual agreement here on the right amount of time and the right amount of learning to happen with each one of these folks, the net net is going to be a higher performing, more successful, happier workforce, right? Absolutely. And, and so the time investment on the front end should actually yield you much greater time savings and, and performance improvements down the road. But we we do have to help through some the art of persuasion to help them understand what that benefit is. Well, and that's in right now, like the, the system implementation that we're doing, you know, we have for most of the work streams that are affected, um, we're doing three different waves of release. You know, release one may not have all of the functionality that exists, but it's enough to be able to do the job. And then release two, onboarding new folks, adding new things that if, if we need to, and then wave three, the same thing. By the time wave three is done, everybody's going to be onboarded onto the tool who needs to be, have the training behind them. And, you know, we're, we're going to make changes as time goes on. And we know that, like, we, we know that perfection, perfection is just a falsehood anyway. Of, right. If you try for perfection, you're going to fail every time. But exactly. if you know you can get it up to, you know, make a reasonable 80, 90%, great. People are going to be able to be trained, proficient, and we know future releases will have other things. It's a lot easier um, conversation and negotiation with the business to be able to say, yes, we're, I can do that. And one of the, what you said prior about the e-learning, like my one challenge to that e-learning thing, especially for the micro-learning, is it's it comes... In my view, like part of the challenge is, okay, pretend you are in a, a company that is had union, has a union portion of it, that you still have to provide training, so on and so forth, but they also have those mandatory breaks, right? So you've got these 10 minute downtimes of, you can't necessarily infringe on that. And if they, you will learn in those 10 minute breaks. So it, it's on top of that, it's, it's, I love the idea of how do you use your downtime effectively, but businesses have to be able to balance you know, what's right for them in their culture and all of that to be able to use that micro learning. And I, I'm a huge fan of micro learning. I love reading five minute articles here and there and be like, cool, I'm going to write this down. I want to learn more about it later. Fantastic. And, and whatnot. And I think it's a great tool. It just, it has to be very well thought out on the implementation and execution of it. Yeah, I agree with you. And you, you raise a good point about representative workforces. I think there are some constraints there that I'm not just knowledgeable enough about to kind of talk around how you would you would weave that in the when i'm thinking about that natural downtime we we have one of our customers at skillful that i'll just speak about I, I try not to make this a commercial not skillful here but but this is an important part of the story because it's actually just about it's a food and beverage distribution company and one of the great findings that we had with them is that when their drivers arrive at a grocery store it's a direct store delivery organization so they're delivering food and beverage product directly to grocery stores so they pull up a kroger or safeway if the Coke truck or the Pepsi truck or, you know, the, the bread truck is in front of them at the dock, they are sitting in the parking lot now for 15 minutes waiting for that truck to pull out. That is an example of natural downtime that happens in their business. So that driver Absolutely. has an option at that point. He can look at his route and he can say, well, the Pepsi guy got be here before me today. I can go down the road and go do my next delivery and then come back. But he might decide that that's going to take longer than actually just sitting it out and waiting to do that delivery. So he's got 15, 20 minutes right now. That is paid downtime. He's not in a break. It's actual downtime. And, and here's the feedback. I, I was on one of the sites with this customer and the employees came back and they were thrilled that they were actually able to convert that downtime into something productive. And that really surprised me. I knew that leadership would be excited that they could convert the downtime. That was obvious. 
What surprised me was the drivers, the receptivity of the drivers to turn that otherwise boring time into something productive. And the reason was not because they wanted to be more efficient. The reason was that they didn't want to have to stay back at the depot at the end of their 12-hour shift to go do that other training that they would otherwise have had to do at the end of their day. So this guy's been working since two o'clock in the morning. He comes back into the depot at noon to, to you know try to finish up his shift. The last thing he wants to do is go spend 30 minutes on his boss's laptop to go take some e-learning program, right? Right. So- by delivering that content in small bite-sized chunks and giving them the flexibility and the time to be able to use it and consume it when it was most available to them, the what's in it for them story was, I don't have to stay after. At noon, I've been working for 10 hours. I want to get the hell out of here, right? And so we were able to give them that functionality. So that's really what I'm thinking of in in terms of micro-learning, giving it to them when and where they need it. Um, yes, I, I've got some bias in my my perspective here because <laughs> we have a platform that can help deliver some of this. But I think even if you're not using our platform, looking for ways to turn those small moments of downtime into something that can be productive. And it's not just because we're trying to make you more efficient. It's because we're saving you the hard burn, perhaps. Of, you have to do this. We're going to give you an opportunity to do this when and where you want to do it and can benefit most instead of that other time, like carving out four hours that you'd rather not have to carve out, right? Well, and that's, and that's a wonderful use case, right? I, 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 I love that story. I mean, you could even likely take it one step further and say, you know, if you wanted to learn something or start to develop a skill or a promotion that you're interested in, you got 15, 20 minutes, you're sitting in a truck, you're waiting, hey, start start going through what what's available content. Absolutely. Yes. Upskill yourself. Have those conversations. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful way. It's just the the awareness of it of what makes sense for the company is you do that diagnostic. Go go with those ride alongs. Have those conversations so you know firsthand. It makes such a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, thank you so much, Doctor Casey. Thank you uh, for spending time with us today on the show. Um, I really do appreciate you spending the time to uh, prepare for today and uh, for spending some time on the podcast with me. Oh, it's, it's absolutely been a pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and share whatever nuggets of wisdom that I've gotten over my my career. Well, there were a lot of nuggets and uh, I know the audience is going to enjoy it. So uh, to that audience, I hope you found the conversation as enjoyable as I have. Please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. Some of you may not know this, but this show is also published to YouTube in full video form. Um, We don't get a ton of traffic on the YouTube channel right now, so don't be surprised to see low video views. Most of our listeners are, are listening on podcast platforms, but it is available on YouTube for folks that would prefer to listen and watch over there as well. As a reminder, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And if you or someone else you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story. We'd love to get you on one of the next episodes. Casey, thanks again for your time today. My pleasure. 